Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Ross Gallagher. In today's episode, we are asking, how does design help you compete on more than price? So there's a growing feeling that as fintech develops and companies look to add more features to their product, we're seeing a lot of similar offerings pretty much across the board. So if you're launching a product into a market where the price point is set, how do you avoid the pointing Spider-Man meme moment? Today, we've put together a panel of experts to discuss how designers help define fintechs to date, what challenges arise when products become similar, and how does design change as fintech evolves? We'll discuss all of this and more in today's show, but first, a few brief messages. Please don't go anywhere. Does your product or service work for everybody? Are you unconsciously alienating some of your audience? Packed with all the handy tips and actual insight, our brand new inclusive design report has all of the information you need to embed a truly representative mindset in your organization. Head to 11fs.com forward slash inclusive dash design and download it today. Okay, let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on this super interesting topic. So first off, we have a return to FinTech Insider for Will Jones, Executive Creative Director at 11FS. Will, welcome back to the show. Maybe you can give us a a reintroduction, um, both to you and your role at 11FS. Cheers, Ross, uh, and good to be back on. Um, So I head up design across 11FS and just make sure across the products and propositions that we build for ourselves and for clients that we're delivering sort of a great brand and, and great experience. Super, Will. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us and sharing your experience and insights. So we have a welcome return to FinTech Insider also for Claire Gambardella, the Chief Customer Officer at Zopa. Claire, welcome back. Maybe you can also give our listeners just a, a little bit of a, a reintroduction about yourself and your role at Zopa. Sure, thanks for having me. Um, so I've been at Zopa about five years and my role uh, as Customer Officer brings together brand experience design and product design and also operations so really thinking about all of the touch points that we have with our customer and how we bring those together to deliver a really simple and compelling experience yeah great to have you claire thanks for joining us and then last but by no means least we have a fintech insider debut for kish patel head of designer Lightyear. so kish great to have you with us um again as with the other guests maybe you can just give us uh little bit of background, both in terms of yourself and your role at Lightyear. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, hi everyone, I'm Kish, uh, head of design at Lightyear. Was previously the first designer at TransferWise, now Wise, and uh, head of design at Plum. Um, at Lightyear, I work with our engineers and product managers to build Europe's uh, best experience in investing. Love that, that's great. So look, Kish, thank you for uh, for joining us. Great to have you all. So let's, uh, let's dive in and let's start by just putting some perspective, I guess, on the industry, a little bit of uh, scene setting. So, well, maybe I'll come to you first on this one. When digital banks were sort of competing with with banks alone, how how important do you think that design aspect was in in terms of just making their their products stand out? I think hugely important, and I think obviously there's a lot of other factors. The fact that they were just representing an alternative what to what had for ages been just oh, it's a bank, it does this, that's fine. We we must go with a bank of some sort. But I think design, not just in the, the feature set that was there, but 
also in terms of marketing design uh, and even you know through to brand design and the messages that are there actually communicating uh, that this alternative was I guess trustworthy uh, and represented a better experience was, was super super important but actually speaking about design in like the broader sense I think not just uh, from experience perspective but how design was approached for uh, a lot of fintechs made all the difference rather than just um, you know taking a statement putting it online and then making some uh, improvements to it it was a case of re-engineering everything from like a customer-centric perspective um, and actually using design as a tool to reimagine uh, and deliver a better experience rather than just uh, making something a bit snazzier. I love that point. I love the point that the, the, the idea of about being a little bit more ambitious. It's not just about taking what we used to deliver through physical channels and delivering them through mm. digital channels. Actually, there's a little bit more to it. And Kish, I mean, you know, the first designer at what's now Wise, one of the earlier um, the earlier sort of fintechs, I guess, something you will have had to grapple with, right? How do you establish yourself in that in that market? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the banks had quite a long uh, head start, right? And <laughs> when you're starting out, the sole opportunity really is design and customer experience because um, they have the branches, they have the size, they've already got this monopoly on trust. So, word of mouth and and people, yeah, people telling their friends and family about how good the product is is somewhat integral uh, and is you know part of how these companies grow. So in the early days, you know, a great customer experience, uh, an easy to use product is, is let's say the easiest part of competing with the banks. Yeah. Making it super intuitive, really easy to understand, really easy to use. I think those nice sort of surprise and delight elements that we're all so familiar with. Claire, what are your, what are your thoughts on this one? So, I mean, I, I totally agree um, with what Kish and Will had, have just said. I do think, though, that one of the advantages fintechs also had was that product design obviously goes beyond the look and feel and the, the interface of the product and also plays through to how the actual product itself is designed and how it functions for the customer. And I think that fintechs, because they had a blank sheet of paper, could look at um, unmet customer needs really differently. And that gave them the chance to re-architect products in a way which could deliver more value for the customer, whether that was monetary value, uh, insight, um, time that we gave back to the customer. And so I really think that that point about re-engineering um, process is very important, but I also think the ability to re-engineer the economics of some of those products and the way that they functioned was, was also a real advantage and a real opportunity for the category. Yeah, I love that point. I mean, the the cost to serve models were fundamentally different, right? But I think will that I think the core Claire's point goes back to what you had said previously about the starting point and and really starting with the customer and you know what were the the customer outcomes. And I think that is where I think a lot of those fintechs have really sort of rethought what was there before, right? Yeah, I think you're right. And look, I mean. It's, it happens in every industry that's had a bit of a shake-up, doesn't it? Someone actually starts to listen to uh, what a customer wants and rather than just listen to what they don't like about the current product, they're actually listening to all of the, the aspects of their lives that the current product isn't even getting close to serving, which, again, is, is creating opportunities for like a bit of white space where 
you're not just competing for feature parity or a slightly better experience, but you're actually trying to, I guess, solve things for them uh, in a slightly different way that traditional uh, banks and, you know, even other fintechs wouldn't necessarily um, sort of check the box for. Yeah, and I think that that's also where we've seen some incumbents make huge progress uh, in this area. But I think where we've seen some of them fail when they've tried to uh, spin off challenges, for example, has been that this idea of design has been a layer that sits on top of everything that they do, rather than being really integrated as a customer centric and design centric culture. Um, and I think that that always starts to create a lot of friction where you've got, you know, you might have great, uh, great looking design, but if the product fundamentally doesn't function better for the customer, then it starts to kind of fall apart. And I think that that real cultural um, focus on customer centricity is really important. I completely agree. I, I like it actually described as a layer because that that sort of illustrates the point about the separation, right? I mean, yeah. you're exactly right in that it's cultural and it has to go like left to right, top to bottom. It has to be everybody thinking about the customer and everybody sort of working in those ways that has to be embedded literally right across the entire function. Kish, keen to, keen to get your thoughts on maybe what are some of those key design principles when sort of designing a new fintech product, something that you want to sort of stand out from the crowd and, 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 and what are some of the, what, what are some of the, the, the standout examples, I guess, that we've seen? I guess, yeah, maybe I can bring some of those like wise uh, memories. It's definitely, you know, we're talking like post 2008 kind of us versus them, um, you know, hatred of banking just generally it was maybe a lot easier to kind of convince customers to, to try out something new, some, something online and some, something for their finances as well. And so I guess, you know, I did a lot of growth there. So it was around like this idea of hacking trust. So. Uh, one of our early investors was Richard Branson. So like sticking Richard Branson, you know, in, in, on the landing page or like uh, automating um, customer reach outs for uh, trust pilot reviews. So how do you get that trust really is like a big question early on. And yeah, it, it, it was, it, that was kind of what we learned was, was the here, here are the low hanging fruits and, and uh, the rest of it is just going to take time. Yeah, and some of the, I mean, some of the examples that I, I, I tend to think of when I think around like sort of disrupting this space actually aren't even necessarily, when you look at them now, I guess we start to take them for granted. They don't even seem all that disruptive. But I guess, you know, the, the, the thing around like transaction categorization, the thing about instant notification, I think those little, those little things that just started to address the point around discretionary spend that started to just combine to give you a little bit more control over your finances, things that weren't being um, solved for previously. Um, well, what do you think? What are some of the best examples you've seen? Yeah, I mean, thinking about uh, examples, I've, I'd, I'd rather go back to your point, I guess, on what what are key principles for, for a fintech yeah. from scratch, because I genuinely think it's very different now to, um, I guess, the point in time that uh, Kish was drawing an experience for, because I think especially if you're launching a like a retail uh, bank or something where it's in a mature market, there's a whole bunch of them. There's literally no point in, uh, one of the key principles, there's no point in, I guess, chasing feature parity from day one, because you, it's very hard to catch up when you've got like a Revolut doing everything in the market and loads of other uh, great ones. So like just 
for those things you know you need, just steal with pride. Don't try and reinvent a, a transaction feed because someone's done it a thousand times and they've gone through a lot of iterations. Actually, like because eighty percent of probably what you're going to build is is kind of out there in the market. Focus on your point of differentiation and boost the amount of time that you're spending there because I think. Otherwise, it's a, I guess kind of a fool's errand to try and bring the same product to market with a with a slightly different brand, unless you really stand for something. So, I think as a key design principle, like ones that start to win, aren't chasing. Oh, we're a brilliant alternative to literally everything you get over there. But um, sort of enter the market with something super useful, and then build. Which I mean, which we've seen like a lot of companies do. Yeah, I completely agree, and and those. I think fast follower strategies, you know, they're, they're sort of doomed to fail for many respects because like you're saying, you're up against people now that are actually out to solve for a very specific problem that the users are having. Um, Claire, keen to give you the, the sort of last word on, uh, on this segment. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so I, I'm going to talk about Zopa specifically because that's what I know best. But I think um, I agree with Will's point that figuring out first what the customer need is you're trying to meet is really, really important because otherwise you try and you're trying to do everything. Um, and I think once you figure out what that customer need is that you're meeting, having some clear principles about how you're going to meet it uh, are critical and need to flow through everything. So for us at Zopa, we have three things that we want to deliver. And those are value, fairness and simplicity. And so all of our choices, whether that's design choices, product choices, brand choices, we kind of measure against that. Um, and if there isn't a way of differentiating ourselves sorry, uh, against one of those factors, that makes us think really hard about why are we doing this and what are we offering to the customer. Um, so for me, having a few simple things that kind of act as your, uh, your touchstone can be extremely helpful when you're trying to measure whether you're actually delivering something new. Yeah, really nice. And I guess really important to make sure that you're delivering a consistently excellent experience for the for the customer as well at each one of those touch points. So really nice. Um, okay, the, well, I'm going to move us on to our uh, next segment. So let's focus on one of the biggest challenges today. Um, and really, I suppose what a lot of this podcast is about if you and your competitors all operated a, a similar price point, whether that's transaction fee, a subscription service charge, how does design ultimately help you stand out from the crowd? So maybe uh, Kish, keen to get your thoughts on that. I guess in the case of investing, the customer isn't doing such a transactional, um, it's not such a transactional business in the sense that it's quite long-term if done correctly it's um yeah we're, we're trying to create this long-term relationship with customers and so the consideration that a customer goes to when they're comparing services isn't one that's purely on fees so in that sense you can compete on more than on, on things like a payment speed and a number of instruments on your on your platform on your tax efficient accounts, on these sorts of things. And so, and the design of the, of the platform itself, um, you find that a lot of customers of, diff, of, of one investing platform of ours, for example, they've, they, you know, they've tried them all, they've tried many and until they've settled on ours. And so, yeah, I think customers are in, in the world of investing are evaluating more than price. They're also, and, and the reason your Hargreaves, Hargreaves and, and um, 
fidelity and, and the big players are still doing really well because they have this trust, right? Which are some of the highest fees. So yeah, I think maybe for investing, it's a bit, it's a bit different and, and the relationship isn't so transactional. Do you think there's, um, I guess, a threshold for how much someone will, will pay for like a better experience? I know, I know access to a lot of things, uh, you know, you might want to invest in something very specific that's on the platform, but if like transaction fees are, are super high do you think uh even the most loyal of customers are gonna start to question it yeah there is this new normal Mm. that's been created in the world of investing where there's you know there's no commissions and and that's because like in that area the fees are quite low and they're almost like close to zero anyway so building a transactional business is you know yeah you might be the only one i mean building a, a, a you know where there's a transaction cost you might be the only one uh, doing so so there is that that does come to play with with lightyear there is an fx fee and fx you know that there's always going to be some kind of fee there so it does make sense to, to charge on that basis yeah i know that makes sense because i've seen i mean thinking about sort of crypto exchanges and things that's a bit more of a I guess a wild west, wild west of exchange fees and things, and actually you see some of the slightly more expensive ones who have better UI uh, and a better experience actually sort of retaining customers. But maybe some of that comes to your point around trust, which is the slicker or more real it looks, the less likely you are to lose your money. Is the perception there is also but... transparency, right? So yeah. there's also. Um, and that's just like a, a word that gets thrown around in finance, I guess. But the idea the idea that the customer truly knows what they're paying for with the world of crypto, you know, there's this bid ask, you know, price, this spread that's in the middle, Mm. you know, you see like this really low fee, but the actual price of whatever asset you're trying to buy is maybe not what's actually the right price right now for us. You know, when you're buying a stock, the price that we're quoting to you is the, is the last price, right? The price that it was last sold at. So, and there is, you know, we're heavily mandated to to give that price and no other kind of price. And so I think what separates us from the crypto world is this transparency is, it, yeah, is that kind of thing that where there isn't any hidden fees. This is the price you're paying. This is the FX fee. And, and that's about it, really. I think, I think it's a really good question, though. I mean, Claire, like, how do you think or can can financial services and sort of, I guess, lean on design to move from something purely transactional to actually building a a more meaningful and a more long-term relationship? Yeah, I absolutely think that they can. And I think there's two things that makes me believe that, or two examples that makes me believe that. I think if I think about Zopa, our origins were obviously as a lender and therefore, you know, price is not one thing. It's obviously individual to each person and their profile. Um, And the way that we think about that is giving value because we may not always be the lowest price because we might have a different view of that person's risk profile to somebody else. But actually, our growth was about giving great value prices, but combined with a much better experience. So, for example, instant decisioning, you know, one of the things that people really care about in the loan category is knowing, am I going to be eligible or not? Um, So the ability to decision loans very quickly has value to people because it takes out what can be, you know, a five day wait for processing with a high street bank. Um, The second thing which is very common in the category now but wasn't when Zopa launched was real rates. 
So the idea that you were seeing a price which was the price that you were going to get, it was personalised to you. So it completely takes out uncertainty on what you were going to pay. And so that transparency also has value to people. So I think that people look at a, a set of criteria. And I think that's also shown if you think about the other side of the coin and the savings environment at the moment, you know, interest rates are going up across the board for consumers, but there is still an enormous amount of people that are leaving money in very, very low interest rate uh, accounts with their high street banks, right? And one would assume that that is because they are choosing the trust that they have in their high street bank and also probably some you know, perceived friction of moving over the ability to access uh, better rates elsewhere. And so part of our job as the fintech industry, you know, Zopa has both fixed term and, and easy access accounts. You know, part of our job is to say, hey, look, you know, you can get better value over here. And also we can combine it with um, with a better product and a better experience. So I really do feel that consumers look at a number of factors and the players that are successful over time are not necessarily the ones that consistently offer, you know, the lowest price or the highest interest but that really get the balance right. Um, and the reason that the industry has been, in my opinion, ripe for, ripe for disruption is that that balance hasn't been in the right place. Um, so, you know, I think that the high street banks haven't felt the need to give enough back to the customer. Uh, and that for me is where the opportunity lies for a lot of fintechs now. Yeah, I think it's such, I think it's such an interesting point, the idea that maybe the the disruption that we've seen from a fintech perspective has kind of come from maybe banks leaving that value on the table maybe because the outcomes that they're working towards aren't necessarily aligned with their customers outcomes right and i think what's really interesting claire and the point that you made about yeah i mean getting rejected for a credit product or any product inherently is a is a negative experience for the customer but actually if you manage it in the right way feels a lot less negative than it might do in other um in other contexts like you said if you've got a five-day wait but like you said giving giving people the information that they need to make better decisions at the right times contextualizing it to them i just think is you're right just a game changer because um, consumers are then in a position where they can make better decisions well keen to get your thoughts on that and then also how important you think inclusive design is as a sort of follow-up question yeah I, yeah i'd love to come on to that the um uh, I thought it was really interesting, uh, Claire, you were focusing on, I guess, some of the more commoditized uh, aspects of, of what this industry does. I guess, you know, loans that you're pretty much looking for a great rate, savings looking for a great rate. And I guess things like uh, mortgages fall into the same category. And actually, as well as being super communicative at the point where people have decided I need a loan or I need uh, to put my savings somewhere, we generally start to see companies, um, for example, nude in the in the mortgage space going, that's cool, but I want to get them earlier. I want to actually uh, use financial education and look on the, like, if my purpose is here, how do I look outside of that to um, actually, what's, I don't know a better way of phrasing this, but become someone's friend earlier on. Uh, and then it's a natural um, progression into uh, then selling them products. Now, someone, I think, is going to still have a look at the rates. They're still going to go with probably what's cheaper, but they'll remember your brand. So it's it's an interesting one. I think whether you can uh, compete on price uh, through design, I think generally it's quite hard. 
especially if you're not that competitive. But if you're sort of there or thereabouts, you have a good brand that is, uh, you know, people see trust in and they see alternative in. And if you've developed a relationship, you've educated them, you've told them why it's better and what they get. I think it is possible, but it's not easy when you've got sort of comparison sites for a lot of more commoditized products. Inclusive design, yeah, super important. I think I think we're all, as an industry, you know, aware of the obvious uh, parts of that, you know, accessibility standards uh, and making sure that people can actually sort of use the product. But I think in terms of whether inclusive design has become a bit of a standard in the industry, I think there's a, there's a lot of aspects that um, are pretty overlooked by quite a lot of brands. So, for example cognitive disabilities and making sure that there isn't uh, overuse of big movement or flashing images etc etc we want to attract people we don't want to put people off and then also i mean think some of the more interesting parts are um some of the products we were just talking about it's quite a big say investment or a thing to sign up for or or even switching a bank account it's a point of stress or heightened anxiety and that in itself is a is an inclusive design um, consideration because people aren't going to behave how they do in all of our testing sessions where there's nothing on the line and they're just clicking away going, oh, this is brilliant. I don't mind this language at all. If you sit them down, and it's very hard to replicate, if you sit them down and, uh, and they're actually making a decision about a lot of money, I think we need to do a lot from an inclusive design perspective to reassure and not to confuse and to reduce the complexity of information and break things out in steps. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Look, I think there's probably a long way to go there still, but I think a hugely useful endeavor. I really think that if you build more inclusive experiences and touch points, I think you end up building better products for everyone across the board. Um, Kish, I'm keen to get your thoughts on, you know, sort of, I suppose, how you build a more meaningful brand and then maybe just putting a sort of investment lens on it from a, a sort of ESG and sustainability perspective are people more conscious now and does it matter more to them what their brand sort of stands for as much i guess as the service that it provides yeah never never have they ever been more conscious as to where their money is going for lightyear uh we launched etfs over the summer so etf is like an exchange traded fund it's like a diverse pool of different assets for example you can get um like a FTSE 100 etf which has got you know which is essentially you, you buy a share of that and you're exposed to the whole index and what was important to us was to even in the mvp have the industries what the sectors and the companies that are kind of making up that etf so you know if this fund has got a British American tobacco or if it's got ExxonMobil in it, um, you're able to know if this is this is right for you. Um, and it's never been more important. We've seen this big wave of ESG in investing over the last five years to the point where uh, the big fund managers, BlackRock and so on, you know, they have you know, they have like an S&P 500 fund, the 500 most uh, l- largest American stocks, and they have like an ESG layer to it, you know, so. It's never been more important. People have never been more uh, interested in it. And uh, it's something that we're really considering at Lightyear. Yeah, nice. Definitely a a big trend and one that I think is only going to continue to grow. Okay, so we're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back with you very shortly. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? 
Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Okay, so let's now move on to our final segment, uh, what the future might hold. Um, Claire, I'll come to you on this one. Um, many fintechs, I guess, are, are pushing to be these sort of enclosed ecosystems or super apps. Um, I'm curious around how you design for something which is sort of meant to offer everything to everyone. And I guess we're seeing Zopa add more features. How important is it just in terms of making sure that the design is right? So, I mean, I think firstly, you need to make a decision on whether you do want to be everything for everyone. And at Zopa, that's not what we want. So we've obviously focused uh, to date primarily on borrowing and saving because they're the two areas that make the biggest impact on people's finances. We are starting to look beyond that and understand where the other con consumer needs are that we can meet. But I personally don't feel that we need to do everything to Will's uh, initial point. And we'd rather do some things really well and in a really differentiated way. I think that as you think about designing for that, um, I'm going to go back to my very first point, which is making sure that your principles, um, what it is that you're delivering, feel really coherent. Because I believe that as you expand your product set, it's important that consumers know what is it that they're getting from you? What should they expect from you? And that really starts at the principle um, and flows all the way through to the way that they use and interact with the brand. So I think it's important, for example, that products have a consistency uh, in terms of how different components function so that people can find their way around easily. Um, I think it's important that there is a consistency of experience um, and that all helps to build trust and ease um, as people navigate through the ecosystem and as we add more products. So those are the types of things that um, I think are extremely important. But I, I do worry that just sort of thinking that you need to do everything kind of goes against that principle of what is it that customers need and what are we delivering to them and can kind of end up with that feature spiral that I think Will talked about at the beginning, the need to just deliver parity across a huge number of areas. Um, and that for me isn't super compelling for, from a customer point of view, because I, I don't think anyone's sitting there thinking that they just need more of what they already have. Um, so being thoughtful around differentiation and around value provision is, is for me the key. Yeah, well, I mean, keen to, keen to get your sort of thoughts on that as well. But it is, it is something that we are seeing and it's an alternative approach, isn't it? Sort of providers putting you know, throwing as many features out there as they can, seeing what sticks, getting rid of what doesn't stick, I guess, testing things in live environments and sort of continuing from there. Yeah. And I guess it's your original point of super apps. Uh, I mean, I, I hate the phrase anyway, because it's, <laughs> it suggests something that's sort of un unwieldy and uh, hard to navigate. And I think that is the biggest challenge because if you are adding features and even, you know, to Claire's point, adding features that make sense for your brand, you're still going to have to have a look at navigation and you're still going to have to have a look at the customer experience. And I think it's really hard to get that right because some brands can start to force an experience on people that only really came for one outcome and might be interested. So actually discovery of other products within the uh, super app itself, context is, is really key to that and actually being able to turn things on. And I think thinking of a navigation 
I, yeah, Claire made the point as well. Consistency of, you know, how you complete an action. You've definitely got sort of universal patterns and controls that need to permeate through your digital experience. But actually, remember, it could end up being a marketplace and being able to do everything all at once at all times to badly quote a film title, you, you would end up, uh, you know, overwhelming someone so there's the need when you're a super app to maybe have consistency of the the way you navigate through it and how you action things but actually like entering uh, a different room of the house for different tasks and only having the things you need there with an easy way out like it's very easy to create something that's complicated um, and creating and reflecting a customer's mode or mindset at a given time is really important rather than taking a purely a product view yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think we've all been there, haven't we, where we've wanted just to complete what in our heads is a fairly simple task, but we can't even mm. navigate to where it is in the in the, uh, in the the UI to be able to do it. I totally agree with it. And I do think that that's where the role of insight, which, you know, often fintechs can do slightly easier than some of the incumbents, um, becomes really key because actually understanding what is it that this user is here to do what might they want to do next how do we serve that up it sounds very easy but it's actually pretty difficult and i think cracking that is super important uh, i think that the second thing is thinking about how you put more control into the hands of the customer so actually you know i think the industry has talked for a long time about financial education but what I think is really interesting is how you serve up sort of bite-sized financial insight at the right points of the journey and give the power to the customer so that they're not overwhelmed. Um, so, for example, you know, we have a tool called Borrowing Power that allows people to understand what is it that impacts their credit score uh, at Zopa and therefore when's the right time for them to maybe get the best value that they can on a loan. I think another example is we've worked with, uh, we've just set up the FinTech Pledge, which is actually an ESG pledge, um, where we're bringing together a lot of different partners in the industry to help drive customer actions that could improve their resilience. And I think these things are great examples of, you know, amidst everything that's out there, um, all of the full service banks, all of the FinTechs, how do you help to curate for people or allow people to curate for themselves the actions that really make a difference to them and drive them forward? And that, I think, is going to be the next big challenge for many of the fintechs out there. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, for those those younger generations as well, right, that are growing up and they're so digital first and that's sort of the experience that they're used to when they engage yeah. with retailers and social media providers and all of that sort of stuff. And I think... It raises, actually, I think it raises an interesting point about the immediacy as well when we were talking about trying to complete an action. I don't think they have the tolerance to actually really stick with it. If they can't do it, they won't do it. Kish, how, how, how different do you think fintech is going to have to look for Gen Z, for example? Yeah, I mean, less time and less attention. I mean, it isn't such a Gen Z thing. I, I guess in the world of investing, we don't, all of us, we don't have time to research a stock or to download and trawl through financial statements. That's more of a, a thing you can do when you're retired. So there is something about the way that they use digital products that we're somewhat similar to. And I, I mean, I'm taking the whole TikTok, you know, 15 second clip kind of uh, thing. With, with Lightyear, we have, you know, a load of 
easy to understand data and news, for example, rather than seeing like a whole news article as to why, you know, Apple fell off a cliff today. It's it's like a bite. We have this thing called lightning updates, bite sized like one sentences as to what's going on in the market for each of the different stocks in your portfolio. When we have financials that are really kind of like, let's say high level um, and analyst rings are quite high level. So you can kind of understand a trend as opposed to like, a whole spreadsheet and a whole, um, yeah, just a whole calculation. I think that's, that's how we think the mass market are going to want to, um, uh, look into a stock, understand like how it's doing and really stay on top of the market. Yeah. I think that's a nice point. And I think when you, you're combining with, with, with sort of Claire's point about surfacing things at the right point in the journey, but also in a, in a sort of digestible format that they're sort of used to and actually um is easy for them to uh to consume um well we're sort of coming to the end and so i'm going to give you the last word on this how does design help you compete on more than price right if we just bring it back to that initial question this is where i try and uh, paraphrase all the smart things that uh kish and claire have said so far but i think of Thinking back on the, on the conversation here, there's you know there's been some some really interesting stuff debated, and I think one of the things is a I guess a focus on brand and moments of delight. People still are um, going oh when they get a new card and it's a bit exciting. I know we thought we were over that, but we're not. I've I've seen it happen even just today with a with a friend of mine. Um, but yeah, focusing on brand and what brand stands for, not just what it looks like um, in a in a savvy market where people actually probably understand how banks make money. And it's not just investments where uh, you could be accidentally funding guns, etc. Uh, and then I guess to look at uh, sort of beyond your uh, the core purpose of where you are and look to solve adjacent things uh, to where your core purpose is to force a less transactional relationship so that you've got that always on uh, relationship that you can you can I guess support with behavioral design techniques uh, rather than just focusing on 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 pure usability I think looking across a I guess a whole uh, product suite or set of services as we do you know see more super apps and looking for points of consistency but also points of reducing friction as well now, I know I'm forgetting a whole load of things that we've gone through today. Inclusive design, uh, obviously super important, and we didn't even touch on, uh, I guess, representation within within that at all. So there's a bunch of things in there, but the other thing to add finally, I guess, um, not chasing feature parity, but actually carving off what's true to your brand that is aligned with, I guess, a bit of a white space within the market um, that gives you something to compete on or an outcome that no one else does because people aren't buying products they're hiring you for an outcome and actually if you can provide that in a way that feels like it aligns with their values gets them there quicker and makes them smile or uh, are delighted sometimes when they when they drop into the app it's it's quite a compelling it's that dopamine hit that keeps people coming back and that's i think if you can't get them in the first instance it's what people refer their friends for. So in a roundabout way. <laughs> I put you on the spot there and I think I think you've summed it up perfectly well. So thanks for tying that all together. Um, and so look, that does wrap up today's discussion. Thanks to you all um, so much for joining me. 
Let's go around and if you could just tell us where uh, people could find out more about you and your companies. Um, Claire, let's start with you. Uh, LinkedIn's definitely the best place, either on the Zopa page or uh, my page. Perfect. Kish, how about you? Golightyear.com and you can find me on Twitter at the Kish Patel. You can also have a little look at my uh, portfolio, but that's not investment advice, capital risk. Right. <laughs> Super. Well, what about you? Uh, just find me on LinkedIn and uh, 11fs.com or future episodes of this podcast. Excellent. Find me in the future. And you can find me at Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter. Um, thanks very much for listening. Um, if you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to the podcast. Oh, and don't forget to leave us a review because it really does help to make the show better and it helps other people to find it. As always, we'd love you to join the conversation. Uh, so find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. Uh, that's it for today. Thank you very much and goodbye.